Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, call it intuition, Leopold Senghor. A tiger does not proclaim its tigritude, he pounces. With this memorable phrase, apparently uttered at a writer's conference in Uganda in 1962, the famed Nigerian writer Bole Shoinka expressed a critical outlook on the nigritude movement. The statement encourages suspicion of the ostentatious glorification of racial identity involved in the promotion of nigritude, and questions whether it is really an effective means of asserting African dignity as it pretends to be. Better to be the pouncing tiger, or the African who just is African, and who writes and behaves as such without advertising the fact, than to waste one's time dressing up one's tigerness in a fancy word and mythology. It was just one of many criticisms directed at nigritude as an idea and a movement during its heyday in the 20th century. Many, perhaps most, of these criticisms were directed above all at nigritude as theorized and promoted by Leopold Sédar Senghor, the Senegalese poet, president, and philosopher. He was a relentless spokesman for nigritude. Some wish he would have relented just a bit, as they prefer Aimé Césaire's version of the concept. Césaire is often seen as the more politically engaged artist and theorist, wielding nigritude as an anti-colonial weapon, whereas Senghor is accused of having left concrete political struggle to pursue grand metaphysical abstractions. There is some truth in this contrast, though it is also in many ways an exaggeration and distortion, one that may prevent us from seeing how much Senghor and his friend Césaire had in common from their time together in Paris in the 1930s and onward. In this episode of the podcast, we will concentrate on getting to know Senghor and return to comparing the two next time when we look at Césaire. To understand Senghor's vision of negritude, it is useful to start where he started, that is, with his birth and childhood in colonial Senegal. Ethnically, Senghor can be counted as Sera. Today, the majority of the Sera people are Muslim, like most other Senegalese, but that was not yet the case when Senghor was born. Many adhered to traditional religion, and there was also a significant number of Catholics. Senghor was raised Catholic in accordance with his father's beliefs, though his mother, who was of Fulani heritage, was apparently Muslim. The family name, Senghor, is thought to be Portuguese in origin, leading Senghor to suspect at times that he might have been of Portuguese heritage. Meanwhile, Senghor's paternal lineage was not simply Sera, but also Mandinka. Among the strongest influences on Senghor during his childhood was his uncle, Toko Wali, his mother's brother. In Senghor's poetry, Toko Wali seems to be presented as neither Christian nor Muslim, but in touch with the invisible forces of nature in a traditional animist manner. Already we can see in Senghor's earliest formation a comfort with diversity, a familiarity with, and connection to, various religious paths and ethnic backgrounds, combined with a sense of being rooted in a distinctively indigenous African outlook. The next important ingredient in his formation was his education, which exposed him to Wolof, the most commonly used African language in Senegal, and also naturally to French. When he went to secondary school in the capital, Dakar, he initially aimed to become a priest. Blocked in this aspiration, he changed schools and was greatly successful in his studies, concentrating in fact on philosophy. 
It was in 1928 that he left Senegal for Paris, where he attended preparatory classes at the Lycée Louis-le-Grand and got a degree in letters, specializing in French, Greek, and Latin from the Sorbonne. He was the first black African to receive a government scholarship for university study in the humanities in France. In 1935, he added a second first, becoming the first African to obtain an agrégation, the highest qualification for teachers in the French system. Césaire arrived in Paris in 1931, and their lifelong friendship thus dates from that year. They opened up new worlds to each other. Césaire once summed up the impact of becoming friends with Senghor in this way, In meeting Senghor, I met Africa. Along with Césaire's friend from high school, Damas, they began to learn about the Harlem Renaissance, memorizing the poetry of its luminaries and cherishing books like The New Negro. As discussed last time, the Salon at the home of the Nardal sisters and the Revue de Montnoir had a great impact upon them, and in 1935 they published the first issue of L'Étudiant Noir. Senghor also began writing poetry during his time in Paris. A poem dating from 1936, Les Portraits, includes his first use of the word negritude, so recently invented by Césaire. We will learn more about the fruits of their unique collaboration soon enough, but for now let us leave Paris for a moment and take a trip back to Senegal with Senghor in September of 1937. He had been teaching Latin to schoolchildren in the city of Tours, which is southwest of Paris, when he was invited by the governor-general of French West Africa to make a study of the state of primary education in Senegal. While there, he was also invited to deliver a public lecture at Dakar's Chamber of Commerce. The speech he gave there did much to establish him as a public intellectual. When he later began to selectively collect his prose in a five-volume series entitled Liberté, or Freedom, this speech was given pride of place as the very first piece bearing the title The Cultural Problem in French West Africa. Senghor's biographer, Janet Valence, helpfully paints the scene, a packed hall full of the colony's most important people, with students crowded in the back, all waiting to hear this most accomplished beneficiary of the French education system. There was, she says, a general sense of anticipation as well as a certain smugness among the French as they settled down to listen to the black Frenchman from Paris. As Senghor opened his remarks, though, he humbly claimed that he came to speak as a serer peasant, he also warned that he would structure his remarks as a dialogue, in the style of Socrates or Koch Barma. Just as Socrates was a real person who did not write but greatly influenced Greek philosophy, Koch Barma was a sage of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, whose sayings became standard Wolof proverbs. By mentioning these two figures together, Senghor foreshadowed the speech's position on education in French West Africa. It must not seek to turn Africans into French people, yet should acknowledge that the West African context is now also French in its own way. It must be, therefore, Afro-French, and aim at bilingualism, in the strict sense of mastering both French and an African language, but also in a broader cultural sense. The influence of the Harlem Renaissance on Negritude becomes obvious when Senghor claims that a bilingual approach to education in West Africa will facilitate the integral expression of the new Negro, he even closes the speech with a quotation from Claude McKay's novel, Banjo. Getting down to our native roots and building up from our own people is not savagery, it is culture. In addition to exemplifying the influences of negritude, the speech is a fine example of Senghor's lifelong interest in clarifying the conceptual relationships between the notions of race, culture, and civilization. 
Senghor defines culture in this speech as a racial reaction by man to his environment that tends toward an intellectual and moral equilibrium between man and this environment. He explains that neither one's environment nor one's race is immutable, so that culture becomes a perpetual effort toward a perfect equilibrium. Continuing the speech's focus on education, he explains it as an instrument of culture in this quest for equilibrium. Education consists for the child in the acquisition of the accumulated experience of past generations in the form of concepts, ideas, methods, and techniques. Finally, he defines a civilization as some total of the concepts and techniques of a given people at a given moment in its history. These concepts come to the fore again in what is arguably Senghor's most famous prose work, a 1939 essay entitled What the Black Man Contributes. Taking as his topic the culture of black people, he describes it as having been born of the reciprocal action of race, tradition, and environment, which, having emigrated to America, has remained intact in its style. He treats the disruption of the transatlantic slave trade as removing people from the civilization they knew in Africa, saying that, for them, the civilization has disappeared, forgotten. In light of his previous definition of a civilization as a given set of concepts and techniques rooted in the history of a people, we can take him to be saying that the Middle Passage detached enslaved Africans from various forms of material culture, political customs, languages, and so on. Yet, Senghor qualifies this. The culture was not extinguished, he says, and slavery in fact compensated for the environment and the disintegrating effect of mixture. He suggests, in other words, that tendencies underlying the forms of civilization in Africa, lost to the enslaved, survived this loss, tendencies maintained in part because of the separateness enforced through enslavement, even as the people of the diaspora became a very mixed people. What tendencies does he have in mind? Well, here is our opportunity to confront the line that has made this essay so famous, or perhaps infamous. Senghor ascribes to the black soul an emotive sensibility, and tries to explain what he means by that with a comparison. Emotion is Negro, as reason is Hellenic. This remark has often been decried as a treacherous case of accepting the racist and imperialist depiction of Africans as mindless, passionate savages, in contrast with calmly rational and thoughtful Europeans. It was important to Senghor to combat what he saw as a misunderstanding of his point, Thus, he later rephrased the point by distinguishing between two types of reason. For example, in his 1956 essay on Negro-African aesthetics, he wrote, The Negro is not denuded of reason, as some have wanted to see me as saying, but his reason is not discursive, it is synthetic. It is not antagonistic, it is sympathetic. It is an alternative mode of knowledge. Negro reason does not impoverish things, it does not mold them into rigid forms, eliminating the juices and the sap. It flows in the arteries of things. It feels out their contours in order to lodge itself in the living heart of the real. European reason is analytic through utilization. Negro reason is intuitive through participation. And certainly Senghor's claim should not be dismissed without first considering his argument. If you simply assume that what Senghor calls analytical reason is the real or superior form of reason, then Senghor will retort that you are being close-minded about which ways of knowing are valid and effective and which are not. Besides, there are reasons to doubt the value of analytical reason, which are given in the longer quote I just read out. Senghor describes this kind of reason as being antagonistically geared towards utilizing its object. 
by contrast, intuitive reason seeks to participate sympathetically with its object. Clearly, he here connects scientific reason as it developed in the West with the imperial project of conquering and exploiting non-Europeans, so intuitive reason is by no means inferior, but in fact ethically admirable. But let's look more closely at the way the contrast was drawn in his earlier essay, What the Black Man Contributes. In his book on Senghor, Suleiman Bashir Dian, who appeared as a guest on this podcast back in episode 14, provides us with a few ways of reframing the offending line. For one thing, he points out, Senghor's poetic side is on show here. The original French, l'émotion est nerre comme la raison Hélène, is in fact an alexandrine, the classic French poetic meter that divides 12 syllables into two groups of six, broken up by a pause. And artistry comes out as an explicit theme, not just in Senghor's writing, but in the essay as a whole. For Jian, the essay builds towards a final section about African art. There, Senghor claims that African sculpture can be grasped only by appreciating its rhythm, which he calls the ordering force that constitutes Negro style. Surprisingly, then, Senghor emphasizes the role of rhythm in sculpture more than he does when it comes to music and dance. As Jian shows, Senghor was strongly influenced by a book called Primitive Negro Sculpture, which compared African sculptures with Greek statues. The authors, Paul Guillaume and Thomas Monroe, contrasted the Greek focus on aesthetic human form with the play of line and shape in traditional African sculpture, which achieves a sort of visual music. This sheds new light on the discussion of emotion earlier in the essay, where emotive sensibility is said to involve a rhythmic attitude. Jian argues that Senghor is really investigating different modes of art, and arguing that emotion is to black sculpture what reason is to Greek statuary. He then extends this observation into a more general and controversial claim about different ways of knowing. Just as Senghor responded to criticism by later speaking of intuitive reason instead of emotion, so he came to reformulate his ideas about rhythm. This was a result of his reading of Placide Templis' book, Bantu Philosophy. We first discussed this work back in episode 15, noting some of the controversy surrounding its account of a Bantu belief in vital force as the essence of being. Then, while discussing the work of Paulin Huntunji in episode 24, we mentioned that Temples' book was criticized by Césaire as a diversion from the problem of colonial exploitation. In an illustration of the difference between Senghor and Césaire, Senghor spent no time in criticizing Temples' colonial politics. He was too excited about how the book could help him express the metaphysical content of traditional African thought. In Temples, Senghor saw a confirmation of his theory of rhythm and a new way of putting his same point. In his Negro African aesthetics, he speaks of rhythm as the pure expression of vital force, and thus as the architecture of being, the internal dynamism that gives it form, the system of waves it gives off towards others. As Senghor's biography would continue to show, he could draw aesthetic insight from pretty well any experience. During the Second World War, he fought for France and ended up a prisoner of war for a year and a half. Typically for him, while imprisoned by the German army, he learned German in order to read Goethe in the original. This would later result in an essay entitled The Message of Goethe to the New Negroes. Senghor also spent his time as a prisoner writing poetry. After the war, he published his first book of poems, Chant d'Ambre, or Shadow Songs, which contained poems dating back to the 1930s 
followed in 1948 by Hostie Noir, or Black Hosts, most of which was written while he was a prisoner. Among his activities during the war, after being released on medical grounds in 1942, was the publication of scholarly articles on linguistic dimensions of Wolof and Serer. But his path forward lay with politics, not scholarship. This aspect of his life and work began with service to the provisional government of the French Republic as part of a commission tasked with deciding how the colonies should be represented in the Fourth Republic to come. He was elected to the National Assembly in 1945 as a member of France's Socialist Party, the French Section of the Workers' International, or SFIO. He was one of two representatives for Senegal, the only part of sub-Saharan Africa represented in the National Assembly at the time. Gary Wilder's book, Freedom Time, Negritude, Decolonization, and the Future of the World, helpfully brings out the importance of the political visions of Senghor and Césaire during this time. Césaire was elected to the National Assembly at the same time as his Senegalese friend, though he represented Martinique as a member of the French Communist Party rather than the Socialists. Wilder argues that they sought decolonization, but not through seeking the creation of independent states. Instead, in a vision that has been forgotten and that we may find hard to imagine from our current vantage point, they sought to turn France into a decentralized democratic federation that would include former colonies as freely associated member states. This form of political integration would bring about the end of colonialism, not by achieving independence from France for the colonies, but rather, as Wilder puts it, by choosing to reconstitute France itself by quietly exploding the existing national state from within. This vision was already implicit in a comment Senghor made in The Cultural Problem in French West Africa, back in 1937. He said at that time, Let us work to make the West African politically a French citizen, but culturally? With this rhetorical question, he opposed cultural assimilation but sought civic equality, which would require eliminating the existing distinction between citizens of France and her colonial subjects. Once he locked on to his democratic federalist idea of the French Union while serving in the National Assembly, he held on to it tightly and for as long as he could. He held on to it while leaving the SFIO to form a new party, the Senegalese Democratic Bloc, whose initials in French are BDS. He held on to it while beginning to develop his distinctive notion of African socialism in essays like Marxism and Humanism and in his various reports at the annual party congresses of the BDS. For Senghor, African socialism requires opposing the atheism of orthodox versions of Marxism because of the need to accommodate the foundational value of African religiosity. African socialism also involves building upon the communalism of traditional African societies rather than the collectivism of European communism. Senghor argues in one of his longest reflections on African socialism that European collectivism involves a union of individuals while African tradition involves the communion of persons. The distinction here between individuals and persons is one that Senghor first made in What the Black Man Contributes, but he develops it considerably in this later writing, arguing that the individual is the man who, as in Europe, distinguishes himself from others and claims his autonomy in order to assert himself in his irreducible originality. The person of communal society no less claims his autonomy in order to assert himself as a being. It is just that he feels, he thinks, he cannot develop his potentialities, his original being, except in and through society, in unity with all the other members of the social group, 
with all men indeed, with all other beings of the universe, god, animal, tree, or stone. Unfortunately, at least for Senghor, by the time of this 1960 speech to the youth of the PFA, the Party of the African Federation, his dream of what the French Union could be had to be left behind. During the 1950s, it became increasingly clear that independence would be necessary if African goals of advancement were to be achieved. Senghor fought hard to avoid the problem of balkanization, the splitting of French West Africa into smaller and smaller territories. By May of 1960, when Senghor gave that speech on African socialism, Senegal was part of what was called the Mali Federation, formed of the colonies of Senegal and what had been known as the French Sudan. The Mali Federation gained independence of June of 1960, but tensions boiled over between its two constituents, and by August, Senegal declared its own independence, seceding from the federation. This is why what was once known as the French Sudan is today the country of Mali. August of 1960 was thus the beginning of Senghor's two decades as president of Senegal. He resigned from this role on December 31, 1980, a significant event during a period of Africa's post-colonial history in which peaceful transfers of power were not the norm. Without getting into the good and bad of his political career during this time, we can say that throughout he maintained his devotion to poetry and continued to offer interesting philosophical perspectives in his prose. Central to his intellectual project, as we've indicated before, was the task of defining negritude. This became an increasing interest of his, especially after 1948, because it was then that the word got a newly significant boost into the consciousness of the reading public. That year, the same year he founded the BDS, Senghor edited a collection entitled Anthology of New Negro and Malagasy Poetry in French. It featured him, Césaire, and Damas, of course, but also 13 other poets, representing Martinique, Guadeloupe, Haiti, Senegal, and Madagascar. It also featured a preface, written by France's most important philosopher of the time, Jean-Paul Sartre. Entitled Black Orpheus, it contained the bold claim that Black poetry in the French language is, in our time, the only great revolutionary poetry. Sartre's preface served to bring Negritude unprecedented attention. It was controversial for a number of reasons, some of which we will explore when we come to consider Franz Fanon's reaction to it. Senghor himself engaged with the preface as he sought to define and redefine Negritude. He wrestled with a distinction Sartre draws between objective and subjective negritude. Sartre characterizes negritude as involving for the black person a process of discovering and at the same time becoming what he is. Just as there are two simultaneous aspects to this process, there are, according to Sartre, two ways of accomplishing it, one objective, the other subjective. He describes on the one hand an objective negritude which expresses itself in the customs, arts, and songs and dances of African populations. When taking this path, the poet prescribes himself the spiritual exercise of allowing himself to be enthralled by primitive rhythms, of sinking his thought into the traditional forms of black poetry. When Sartre turns to discuss Césaire, though, he claims that the Martinican poet does something very different, something subjective. As Sartre puts it, Césaire has chosen, on the other hand, to re-enter into himself backwards. Sartre calls his preface Black Orpheus because he draws on the Greek myth of Orpheus, who could not turn to face his wife Eurydice as he attempted to bring her back from the netherworld ruled by Hades, 
as doing so would cause her to disappear. He describes Césaire's surrealistic poetic practice as a descent into the soul with eyes closed and back turned. Indeed, much of what Sartre appreciates about Negritude seems rooted in his appreciation of Césaire's subjective Negritude. Sartre claims, for example, that Negritude is not a state nor a definite sum of vices and virtues or intellectual and moral qualities, but a certain affective attitude in relation to the world. He identifies as a major component of this attitude the feeling of exile, embodied in the situation of being from the Caribbean in France, which is exile upon exile in light of an original exile from Africa. Senghor's 1971 essay, The Problematic of Negritude, likewise contrasts the subjective and objective. He discusses a definition of negritude offered by Césaire, the inventor of the term. Negritude is the simple recognition of the fact of being black and the acceptance of this fact, of our destiny as blacks, of our history, and our culture. Despite its brevity, Senghor believes that this statement is a two-for-one deal, containing two complementary definitions of negritude, one objective, the other subjective. Objectively, he writes, negritude is a fact, a culture. It is the sum total of the values, economic and political, intellectual and moral, artistic and social, not only of the peoples of Black Africa, but also the Black minorities of America and even Asia and Oceania. I am speaking of the peoples of Black Africa who built civilizations and developed arts that historians, specialists of the human sciences and art critics discovered and began to exalt at the beginning of the century. On the other hand, he goes on, subjectively, negritude is the acceptance of this fact of civilization and its prospective projection in history as something to be continued, as a Negro civilization to be revived and accomplished. It is, in sum, the task that the negritude militants assigned themselves, taking on the values of the civilization of the Black world, actualizing and fertilizing them, with foreign contributions as necessary, in order to live them by ourselves and for ourselves, but also in order to cause them to be lived by and for others, thus bringing the contribution of the new Negroes to the civilization of the universal. Here, Senghor takes up Sartre's distinction only to subvert it, refusing Sartre's emphasis on negritude as a feeling of loss and exile. Black civilization is something that can and must be reborn, according to Senghor. By working towards its full resurrection, black people not only strengthen themselves, but bring a gift of great value for all people. The world needs both emotion and reason, or if you prefer, both intuitive reason and analytical reason. This optimistic vision remains controversial. One recent book on negritude by Rayland Rabaka celebrates Damas's and Césaire's versions of negritude while condemning Senghorian negritude as politically impotent, insult-embracing, racism-accepting, and colonialism-condoning. Meanwhile, Sheikh Chiang published a book on Senghor that came out the year before Rabaka's, aiming to rehabilitate the Senegalese thinker's reputation. According to Chiang, it is wrong to saddle Senghor with a firm belief in racial essences. He writes, Senghor's conception of race is based on the postulation that, although the existence of biological race is questionable, cultures do exist. For our part, we would caution against both Rabaka's too simplistic rejection of Senghor and Tian's overly rosy picture of his racial theory. Senghor really was a racial essentialist who connected black cultural traits to biology, or sometimes, as in his essay, Negro-African Aesthetics, to a distinctive psychophysiology. 
Yet there are aspects of Senghor's attempts to think through race, culture, and civilization that reveal underappreciated depth and insight. Part of the problem is that, while almost all his poetic output has been translated into English, only a tiny amount of his prose has been made available to those in the English-speaking world who do not read French. Addressing this lack would be a first step toward recognizing both the promising and the problematic aspects of his thought. This is also true, although to a lesser extent, for Césaire, who has come up so often in this episode that it may seem like yet another two-for-one deal. We need to look more carefully at his contributions, though, as well as those of his wife, Suzanne Césaire. So get ready for two Césaires for the price of one in the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>